Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you need some new earbuds and or headphones, go over to tweakedaudio.com, enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. That's a third off the asking price. Tweakedaudio.com, the promo code, one more time, is OTHERPEOPLE, Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hi, everybody. How's it going? <laughs> right. This is it. This is other people. This is the program. Welcome to uh, the program. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. I'm hosting the program as we speak. It's good to be with you. I have a wonderful show for you today. I always get excited when the podcast breaks new ground. And today, I'm pleased to report that we are breaking some new ground here. Door to Norris is my guest. And unless I'm forgetting something, she is the first Danish author ever to appear on other people. She came to Los Angeles all the way from Denmark. And I, here I should interrupt myself and say that um, it's not for lack of want. I would love to talk to Danish authors. We just don't get that many of them out here in Los Angeles on book tour. Dorda is uh, sort of a rarity in that way. So she was here in town in support of her latest book. It is called So Much for That Winter, which is comprised of two novellas and is available now from Grey Wolf Press. Dorda uh, came to my house, my old house. It was completely empty after the move. <laughs> uh, she came here straight from the airport in a car. She was uh, suffering from a rare form of vertigo, which you're going to hear us talk about in just a moment. It was an extremely hot day. It was extremely hot in the garage. There was a chance on account of heat and vertigo that Dorda could keel over at any moment. just to give you a little context. And, uh, you know, in, in light of all that, you would think that she would have been, uh, uh, you know, less inclined to talk with me, but she was a wonderful guest. She could not have been a better guest. So much fun to talk with, ready for anything. 
and uh, with a life story and a cultural background that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, are new to this program, which I'm grateful for. And I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dorda Norris and her new book. One more time is called so much for that winter. I got this inner ear disorder. What's it called? It's called the Latin is benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Okay. It's a kind of vertigo. It's a vertigo that is triggered if sometimes when uh, the head is tilted in positions that unleashes the little stones that you have in the ear. You have stones in your ear. You have them too. I didn't know that. You have them. That's because they stay in place. But when you have this disorder, they sometimes escape the little room they're supposed to be in. How big are they? They're so incredibly small. Okay. They're like stardust. Okay. But they touches the nerve that keeps you balanced. Okay. And, so, and uh, your stones have been dislodged? Yes, because of aviation. Okay. Because I'm <laughs> I'm flying a lot right now. So you and just got off a plane from Washington, D.C. I did. You're on tour in the United yes, States. Yes, I am. Grey Wolf. And, and the Danish government finances international author tours? Yes, they do. I so cannot. I get the full tour. They pay for it. They pay for some of it. The the deal is that the Danish Arts Foundation pay for, uh, if I get an invitation from another country, they will perhaps, not necessarily, but they will quite often pay for uh, the flights. Okay, so do you have to apply? Is it like some big tedious bureaucracy or does your publisher over in Denmark ask for it? Like how does, how do you inquire about whether or not they're going to pay? Well, if... If Grey Wolf, for instance, can apply for this, they can say, we want to have Daughter for a tour. Would you assist in paying some of it? And then they give them an estimate of, of how much it will cost, and Grey Wolf pays something also, and then it, it all comes together. Uh-huh. But also, the, the deal is that they will pay for a night before and after an event. So it's about having the events as close together. So I'm a busy little girl. Yeah. They don't give you many days off. <laughs> no, they don't. But you're going to have some time off in Los I'm Angeles. I'm going to have two days off in, in Los Angeles, which is going to be good for everything. And you can get those stones to relodge. settle. Yeah. Yes. You have to, the settling of the ear stones. Yes. What are they called? They call the ear stones? They're actually in Danish. We call them ørsti, which means ear stones. Okay. But I don't know if that's the American... Now, now I'm suddenly word. conscious of my inner ear. I'm wondering where uh, well, my stones are. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a little fun disorder I inherited from the women in my family, which you, I actually, my recent novel is about a woman who suffers from this, and I found it so incre- incredibly interesting that it is the women who pass it down. What kind of vertigo is that to yeah. pass down to, you know, sort of a gender-based? Because men get it too. No worry now, but yeah. men actually get <laughs> but it But it's too. genetic. Uh, but, it's, but in my family, it's the women. Huh. So what's the what wor- is that? What's the worst manifestation? Like if you have it, you, you pass out, you tip over? No, no, no. You, you get a little unfocused. It's like being car sick. Okay. Basically, and uh-huh. then when it's really bad, you can actually faint from it. Well, where are we on the ten scale? If ten <laughs> is the, if ten is the worst, and one is the let's see, let's see where it ends. Okay, so it's just this adds an element of drama to the interview. <laughs> Dorda could uh, topple over at any moment. <laughs> I could be gone in a second. Uh, so, how long have you been in the states? Just a few days. Uh, I flew in Sunday, so it's about five days. All and right. I've been in a couple of days in New York doing readings with Max Porter, for instance. And uh-huh. I've been in recent guest on the program. Yes, awesome writer. Love his book. Yeah. And then to Boston, uh, where I did a reading with uh, Jensen Beach, who's also a Grey Wolf uh, author, great one. Yeah. And then to Washington. 
to do a solo reading. And tonight I'm in L.A. to do a reading with my old friend, Jared Kopik. Also a guest of the program. Yes, and a, a clever one. Yes, he is yes. a clever one. We he were talking is. a little bit about him. Like, I remember his episode and the conversation we had in this garage. And uh, it, it ran long. I kind of just wanted to keep going. He's an easy guy to talk to, and he's very interesting. He, he's, he's the kind of writer who researches the things that the rest of us don't pay attention to. And then he stocks it, and he, he, can, he can have these long lines of association where he just takes it on and on, and you can't stop listening because he has built an entire theory of it in his head, and he offers it so generously. Yeah. Um, How do you know him? I know him from Denmark, actually. Uh, we were at a residency there together. Uh, How did he get a residency in Denmark? Well, Lord knows. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Is he Danish? But there is an international uh, stay at a place called Hell in uh, Jutland, where okay. I also live. And um, every year, every summer, four international writers get to stay there with Danish writers. And before I had my international breakthrough, I went there a couple of times uh, to, to stay there with the international writers, which have been such promising things I've met there. It's been the best residencies I've ever been on. Huh. And the, so, your international breakthrough. I want to get there. Yeah. But like, like, first I want to just talk about life in Denmark because mm-hmm. uh, I think um, uh, a lot of Americans, especially uh, liberal Americans, have a certain fascination with uh, Denmark mm-hmm. and Scandinavia and can idealize it uh, as like, you know, a social democratic mm-hmm. utopia. Or a, like, I think in my mind, it seems like these countries um, have the kind of functioning governance and uh, a certain sanity to the way that they're uh, arranged that uh, makes me envy them. But am I overstating it? Am I uh, building up something in my head that isn't actual? Yes and no. I would say that the Danish or the Scandinavian countries have a high degree of social awareness. We believe in community or we used to believe in community and solidarity and you know i if i if i tilt and faint <laughs> in denmark <laughs> it won't cost me anything i can yes. just go to the hospital and have a doctor uh, look at me right um and also children can go to school where they want to and and so forth there's a we're pitching into the same uh, social uh, security system and helping each other out but this system is also being unraveling it's uh, there are strong right wing, far right wing forces in Denmark that are trying to pull these things apart as hyper new liberalism, and it's it's like Denmark is a part of the world. We got our small trumps, and we got all these things um, that uh, that interrupts with the ideal Denmark. Yeah, well, and, and uh, when you talk about like right wing, um, you know, forces that work, like a lot of it, I feel like that's manifesting in Europe and Scandinavia has to do with immigration, isolationism. Yes. Is th- there's that fear there. Yeah, I woke up this morning and saw at the airport that, that Britain has uh, left uh, the yeah. EU. Yeah, we're talking on the day of the Bre- like the official day of yes. the Brexit. And it was actually that I um, it, I've just had a stomach ache. It scares me yeah, incredibly. Me too. And me too. It scares me so much because if they leave, what will fall apart? And it's like the entire Western world is... Uh, is so split and so divided and so filled with rage or response to rage, I would rather see, which say it's the flip side of fear, perhaps, because of the whole immigration uh, problem. Well, and it's like, you know, you look at the demographics of the vote, Mm -hmm. which I think is maybe uh, it's the best way to to look at the vote. But Mm -hmm. it's, you know, older people 
people who don't have to live with the consequences of Brexit for very much longer mm-hmm. voted to leave um, by a significant margin, mm-hmm. and younger people uh, voted to stay. And then you also have a, a very clear split between people with higher education and people mm-hmm. without. Um, you know, so there are certain there are certain ways of looking at the polling that I think are in indicative of how a lot of times these sorts of arguments play out. I see a, I see certain similarities in the United States. I'm oh, sure. it's so similar. And yeah. also that I would say that the way we debate these days is that we debate in echo rooms. I mean, we debate with the ones who agree with us and then we just trash the others. We're not really talking together. So both groups are certain that they got it right and they're never sort of giving in to the others in, in, in debates or anything, or in the internet, which is one big echo room. I right. Mean, uh, and that is really not good for democracy because democracy is accepting and sort of finding a, spl- a, a place to meet. Yes. And uh, so the whole Brexit thing might be caused by the internet. <laughs> who, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean the, and also the fear that everybody's got is also caused by modern media, a lot of it. I mean, when every time I turn on the television, here in America, for instance, there's a fire going on there. There's a shooting there. There's a everything. Is, it looks like it's hell. Yeah. And I look out the window, and it's not. It's like it's there's a constant portrayal of a world in fire in flames. Is it the same in Denmark? Do you have the same kind of yes, media? Yes, we also not not the same, but we also have these 24-hour news uh, channels that yeah, do you have like a. a- Police helicopters, you know, uh, filming car chases like they do in Los Angeles. No, 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 no. It has not come to that. <laughs> and, and pray God. Yeah. I hope it doesn't. It's a daily occurrence here. Yes. It's constant. Yes. It's not healthy. Oh, no, it's not healthy. They all end the same. It's entertainment, but there is a very bad flip side to it that people get more and more scared. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, it's like a fear culture, and then the media just uh, feeds it. They do. And, um, and it means that the, the nations divide. So is Den, but I mean Denmark. Please tell me it's saner. It's saner, but maybe by just like a, a certain it degree. It is. It is saner. We don't have a Trump, but we have lunatics in, in the government too. Yeah. I mean, but we don't have a presidency like that. And um, Denmark is a small country. That is the first thing to notice. Five million people. That means it's half a country. It's a tribe. Uh, we all know each other. Smaller than like Los Angeles County. It is. In terms I mean, of population. It's like the south tip of Manhattan. Right? It's like, it's ridiculous. It's, it's nothing. And, but we have super big egos. And also a complete fear of being run over. Uh, a very small language. And, but the, the Danes, and I think the Scandinavian countries as such, has a sense of themselves being on top of the world, like the smartest people, the best people, the one who nailed it in the world. And this is a problem. It's like when Danes apply for a job at the United Nations, they think that it's enough just to say, well, I'm Danish. Give me the job. I mean, <laughs> I speak four languages. <laughs> yes. It's like there's a there's a bit of megalomania going on, which is a small country phenomenon. Yeah, you got to have some humility. You yes. Know, you need to come at things humble. Yeah, but they don't. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. We but, don't. you know, there's a lot to be proud of, too. The there nice. is. There is. There is uh, I love the language because this is my native tongue. or well, not the English, but the Danish is my native tongue. And 
I love the landscape and I love the deadpan nature of the place, the humor, the willingness to be cozy, to have a good time together, to let go, uh, the naughtiness, the playfulness of Denmark. I love that. Can and I ask I, you a question about something? This is mm-hmm. like a little bit, I mean, I, I could be totally mischaracterizing this because I, I was in Denmark once. This was 20 years ago almost. I was young. But I remember women in Denmark being very, um, not aggressive, but like way more forthright than I about like flirting and more matter oh, more matter of fact about it than it's because um, the men don't do anything. Danish men are not known for for being big flirters, so the women have to do something. About I, I just it remember themselves. being taken aback by it. I was like, oh wow, and it wasn't it wasn't anything um, salacious. It was just like there was just kind of a matter of factness, and there yeah. it wasn't coy, straightforward, straightforward. Yeah, is that a cultural thing or? Yeah. Yes, also because women in Denmark has a better position in society than women in most of the world. There's a there were equal rights to a certain extent, and then that's not even true either. Women still have a lot to fight for uh, before we are there. But, but compared they, to other countries, what do they have? Like you know, I mean, we have the right to education. We have a right to meaning. We are completely free when it comes to sexual liberation we can date who we want we can do what we want we can get divorced when we get bored with the man we can do what we want there's i mean we i mean we don't have to marry the dude we get pregnant with there's a lot of things there's sort of a freedom in 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 female life in denmark that is really really cool high educations good jobs women don't when they get kids they don't most of them keep on working there's daycare systems there's, there's paid leave paid leave all these things i just saw an interview on i think it was bill maher's show not too long ago with and i'm going to forget her name i think it's rebecca traster she's a journalist with new york magazine mm-hmm. i could be butchering that but i think that's her name and she was super eloquent about the ways in which um the system of uh corporate governance and the system of uh you know governance uh writ large are designed to keep women at a disadvantage. Mm. And it's one of those things that you don't, you know, a lot of people, men especially, might not understand until you sort of like scratch beneath the surface and say, oh yeah, without paid family leave, that significantly hinders a woman's ability to perform in the workplace. Like she's got to go home. How does she Mm -hmm. work? How does she, you know, Mm -hmm. it stretches people, it stretches women especially. And, you know, I'm going to paraphrase it and do a terrible job, but it was just, it was a, a really bracing monologue that she gave mm. about it and it, it was uh, eye-opening and it sounds like maybe you're talking about a system that that does a better job it does a better job but it can still get better right. for instance women still have a problem with uh, saving up for their pension in Denmark because if the man uh, is is at his at his work and the woman is on maternity leave she cannot I mean there's a, she cannot pay her her pensions and and also men still get paid more they do there is still no equality Mm, i was going to say equal pay but equal pay is not not a thing no 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 on on the surface we don't talk about it anymore but it's there and also when it comes to the violence of women on that's still a huge problem i think it was like 90 women were killed by their partners last year in denmark and that is not a culture where there are equal rights for for the genders but compared to most countries in the world it's heaven for women yeah it is. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the outskirts. I grew up in the part of Denmark called Jutland, 
which is the farthest away from Copenhagen. And I grew up in a small parish, uh, rural country, farmland. And uh, then On a when, farm? No, my father w- uh, was a parent, a master pa- uh, carpenter. Parent? My father was a parent. <laughs> Come on. Yes, he was. He was a parent. My father was a carpenter, a master carpenter, and my mom was a teacher in arts. And uh, But we lived in on a farm that, or a place that used to be a farm. You so have siblings? I have two older brothers. Okay. So mm-hmm. you're the baby. I'm the baby sister. All right. They Always turns into artists, don't they? <laughs> yeah, right. You have it. I mean, it's like your mother was a teacher in the arts. Well, when I was born, she was a hairdresser, but she always wanted to go to art academy, but was born in the 50s in a family that couldn't afford to send her. So when the youngest, which was me, was old enough uh, to, uh, to not have her around all the time, she educated herself an art teacher, teacher. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's where you get it from, you think? I get a lot from my mom's family, a lot of talent uh, in the arts, uh, a lot of sensuality towards uh, psychology and language and stuff. But my father is a great narrator. He comes from a family of people who really like to tell stories. So he's like a raconteur. He's a, he's a, a, a talker. Combination. Yes. And, he's a, and he's a carpenter, though, because carpentry, uh, structure, I could see some sort of line between writing and yeah, carpentry. And he's, he's fun also. He has a great sense of humor. So, so it's a, it was a good family. There are stand-up comics in my family. The, for and real? On my father's side, yes. Oh. Yeah. So so there, there are some sort of good combination there. Not see. with the ear thing. I could have done without that. <laughs> this Mom. vertigo, these ear stones. <laughs> could, done, could have done without that. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, So did you have a happy childhood, relatively? (laughs) I loved growing up in, in, in the countryside. I recently moved back there. I loved the landscape. I loved that I could disappear into the landscape and just be on my own. And I was a loner, I think. I think I had childhood. I felt pretty alone. Also with these older brothers and not really connecting <laughs> that much with them. <laughs> How much older? But, Oh, the oldest is seven years older than me, and the other one is three years older than me. But they were into other stuff. They were just... They're boys. Yeah, they were boys, and they were often gone. So um, very close to my mom, and uh, and did, very often on my own. Did you, li- did you live in isolation? Like, were you, did you, was your house at a remove from other it neighbors? Was, it was in the countryside. They were. I used to go to that farm, little 
was next to and played with the kids down there and really loved that. They were from a very Christian family, and my family were not Christian. Well, we are Christian, but we were not believers, you could say, like that. We're stand-up comedians with ear stones. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like, um, so... I would go there and play with them and also with the kids from school, but would quite often prefer to play my my own games, uh, which is a thing that I've heard that a lot of writers uh, do when they were kids. It's fun with the others, but the, the absolute freedom is in being on your own when yeah. you create your games because they can't follow up the others. Well, and I have like, you know, I think I think it can be done depending on temperament just about anywhere geographically, but I think that living in the country, spending a lot of time on your own, mm-hmm. having that sort of blank space as opposed mm-hmm. to living in, you know, a crowded metropolis mm-hmm. where you have all this stimulation and all this uh, human interaction happening all mm-hmm. the time, it sort of forces your hand. Uh, if you live in a place where as a child you can often be bored, it makes you have to invent your own fun. Exactly. And and actually, I lived in Copenhagen for many years, but recently moved back to the landscape because I could not live without it. I mean, it, it was uh, it became a, a daily need to find something in Copenhagen that resembled landscapes. So I went to cemeteries because they looked like landscapes. and They were and open. They were open. And in Copenhagen, people use the, the the cemeteries as parks because there are not enough parks, so there are often quite a lot of people there. But it resembled landscapes. So the whole idea was to find places where I could be alone in Copenhagen, which didn't make sense. And then after a, a lot of turmoil and strange decisions I actually decided to move back to the wildness and okay so just because I've never been there describe the landscape like what does it look like where I live or I would say where I grew up it was uh, flat and it was moors like a big sky a great horizon uh, windy and uh, I remember I was in Minneapolis a couple of years ago and driving from the airport to, uh, to downtown. I thought, oh, my God, this reminds me of home. It's like these So big many Scandinavians settled big, in Minnesota. Exactly, and that's why, because the big plains, the, the big sky also, the big sky. And where I live now, now I live by the West Coast, by the North Sea, uh, which is even flatter and even wilder and even more rough. It's really tough country, and then there are these big, we call them sea mountains, big, huge dunes that sort of protects the landscape from the sea. Yeah. Um, beautiful, amazing. You, you, so you, do you live, can you see the ocean from where you are? No, but I can see the dunes. Okay. I can see the dunes. Do you live at a remove from other people, or do you live in a... In a I, I live in a small village. Okay. I live in a small village, and it, I think there's a kind of trend in Denmark where people move from Copenhagen... Uh, back into the landscape, back into the deserted villages uh, in order to... Better real estate prices. Exactly. I was actually able to buy a house out there, which I would never, ever have been uh, able to do in Copenhagen. Yeah. But this job, never. It's tough. It's tough to buy homes with (laughs) a writer's salary. That's not... And also, more than anything else, which also has a line back to my childhood with the freedom and is that the freedom is the number one thing for me. And, uh, like if, freedom of schedule, having the time to, exa- to do the work. Yes. And if you're tied down by mortgage, mortgage, how do you mortgages? Mortgage, yes. Always bad. <laughs> um, then that's your freedom tied up there. Yeah. So live cheap. Don't, that's right. Don't put all your creativity into bills. Yeah. Well, um, 
and then you you know growing up uh in the countryside was writing something you were thinking of then or is it something that you came to later sorry that the uh, writing yeah oh i think storytelling uh was there from the beginning okay and i would dictate my stories to my mom um have her write them down and then she would read them that's around four when i couldn't write myself and she would read them to me after i had dictated them and if she had changed just this one tiny thing i would go berserk <laughs> Kid, kid memory is crazy because I mean, kids can remember every detail. I got so angry if she changed anything because she thought it sounded better. Hmm. And so so it was written in the stars. You could say there was something fishy going on with language there. So as soon as I learned to write myself, uh, there was some sort of narrative going on. Um, but very often it was also storytelling to the to the to the friends or the, the schoolmates, uh, things like that. Like the like orally, just talking. Yes, story. I mean, I would sit down at the farm with the Christian kids in in their <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of their sewer and their <laughs> pigsty. I mean, <laughs> almost and tell stories. And I actually kept the secret for many many years until I was almost until I was published that I wanted to be a writer. Every, I didn't tell it to anyone when I was at university and anything. But then, did you? What did you study at university? I studied uh, uh, Nordic language and literature and art history, and I got a master's degree in that. But then, when I was published, I met the kid from from the Christian family, and I said, "Well, we all knew, we all knew. I mean, yeah. it's not, it's, it's no surprise." But I thought I had it covered. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, that's funny. It, it happens a lot. Writers don't express their ambition openly until they have a publication. I've heard that said on this show more than once. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Was there a sense of, you know, if I tell people that I'm on the hook and if it doesn't happen, then I failed publicly. Mm -hmm. Is that like a self-protective? It's definitely something self-protective, but it's also because it's awkward. Uh, It's also something with humility. I think I had written three books before I, I was willing to present myself as a writer. Like, like published three books or just written three books? I had published three books before it felt right to say that I was a writer. And it's probably because it was such a huge dream my entire life. Like, I mean, all my, all my idols and all the very important people in my fantasy life were writers. Who, who, give me some. Who are some of your idols? Well, Hans Christian Andersen. Of, of course. course. Yeah. Um, Astrid Lindgren, um, the mother of P.P., and uh, when I grew older uh, and into my teenage years, it was Swedish writers a lot. I loved uh, that bleak blackness of the, of the Swedish story writing. And it has changed over the... But I actually majored in Swedish literature. Mm. I stuck to it. Uh, but Like Newt, you know, Newt Hampson? Is he Swedish? No, he's Norwegian. He's Norwegian. I love him too, actually. Yeah. Now we found out he's a Nazi, so yeah. we're not supposed to, that, <laughs> right. to like him, but he's actually pretty good. <laughs> well, that's like, it's, a tr- it's like tough because I'm a big fan of Louis Ferdinand Celine, and he was like, a, you know, he got arrested and for collaborating with the Vichy, you know, and you're like, oh God, yeah. I like those two books, but it turns out he's not maybe yeah. the greatest guy and it's hard to kind of reconcile those things. No, but I mean, we have to split these things up. Yeah. I mean, I'm reading Sally Mann's memoirs right now, and she also says that no matter what um, the artist did, 
and who he or she is or was, uh, we have to look at the artwork. Yeah. That's just it. We can't, we can't investigate the rest. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you can sometimes regret. Like, I can find myself reading biography or watching documentary about an artist and find myself regretting that I found certain things out because then yeah. every time I watch one of the movies, it's in my head, you know, and I'm like, I think I would be better off not knowing this. Exactly. But now it's too late. Exactly. So but the, the, the moral of the story is never learn anything about anyone. No. <laughs> and, but a lot of people are incredibly occupied with by the bio biography of writers and celebrities. And I, I'm and, one of them. And, and well, I think I used to be, but I'm getting more and more bored with the biography. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I know when I write that I use stuff from my own life. I know that I sort of donate stuff to the writing, but I also know that I make a lot of things up in, in, in the conquest of the book itself. So when I read a big writer, I can see, okay, here's he, here he's probably donating some personal stuff but I don't know when he's p uh, donating what, so who cares? See, that's where I'm like, I want to find out. And so, no, I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's too much work. The book, the novel is enough, or the fiction is enough. But it's like, like if, the private is so trivial. It is often, but sometimes it's pretty juicy. And um, I don't know, I, I, I find a lot of times if I read somebody and I really like their work and I read it sort of uh, soup to nuts, you know, all of mm -hmm. their books... I will then go after that into the nonfiction. I'll mm -hmm. read the memoir. I'll read the biography. Mm -hmm. I'll want to kind of know everything. You want to know it all? I want to know it all. Uh, well, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you first start like a regular writing ritual? Like was it when you were in university or? Um, I wrote a lot when I was in my teen years. Poetry? I wrote poetry, yeah. like the rest of the female <laughs> population. I wrote poetry, but I didn't stop. I, and I guess that's the difference. I kept on writing it. And uh, then I went to university and studied literature. And uh, that blocked me. Because we were supposed to look at literature from a complete different angle. And what I felt was an incredibly stiff and stupid angle, completely without musicality, completely without the artfulness of it, without feeling it, without being in it. We had to sort of just cut it into pieces and see what was left. And most art dies that way, and they almost kill literature for me. The good thing was that I read a lot. I read a lot during those years, and that's where it paid off, because when I finally... Um, graduated or handed in my thesis which was on a Swedish writer I didn't have a party I actually ran home and started to write on my first novel uh, which took me five weeks to write there was really some some things that had to get out of the system I guess that wow. it, it, yeah well don't read it <laughs> you can tell that it took five weeks was but it, it was published it was published well it was published at least it made um, it through the hoops it made it through the hoops and a very good a publisher so so, but you know, most writers don't like their first book. I'm, the, yeah, I have a book and I'm like, eh, I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah. I got to rectify that. Yeah. We sort of shun it. It's like, I'm better now. But it's like a picture of you at a certain point in your life. And yeah. there's all that energy. And it's funny because I've talked to writers on this show who have had major publishing success with a book earlier in their career, if not their debut. And they'll say something like that. They'll say like, ah, you know, it, uh, 
it wasn't my best or yeah. I, I look at it now and it's a little, it feels loose or it feels sloppy or whatever, but there's something to be said about that energy. You can't replicate the energy of youth in art. And I think that it's less obvious maybe in literature, but to me it's very obvious in music. Mm-hmm. You know, when you hear yeah. m- music by like really young people, yeah. it's got this, this energy and you're like, okay, we can't uh, fabricate that past a certain age. I think you're absolutely right. There is, there is an energy or a fiercefulness. It's like, just go at it like crazy. Yeah. The problem is, or the problem in my debut novel is that I didn't know how to use the volume knob. I mean, I turned up everything. Yeah. I mean, crank it up, crank it up. So they hear it. I didn't, I had no sense of what the reader was able to take in. Uh, without me turning up the knob. So the first three books I wrote were all about turning down the knob and actually f- finding out how little you have to turn it up for people to actually get what you're saying. Yeah. So uh, And there's that, power sometimes in subtlety. Exactly. Subtlety makes people listen. This is why, you know, you go from heavy metal to to the lute. Yeah. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> you're an ex you're the literary lutist. I'm the lutist of <laughs> of of writing, yes. Of Danish literature. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, but it was a three-book apprenticeship, but these books were getting published. Mm-hmm. You're learning modulation. Mm-hmm. You're learning how to modulate your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, do, can you recall like a breakthrough? Was there a moment or a book or a, something you read or, you know, can you, can you point to something where you found that out or was it more of just a gradual process that you realized you had gone through only with the benefit of hindsight? Uh, all my books started getting thinner and thinner. That was a hint, I would say. Yeah. And uh, on my third book, which was a book about a 19-year-old who uh, was grieving, it took me three years to write because it was technically hard to write, but it was also emotionally hard um, to write it. Were you grieving? No, my, um, no. but I had some family that were. were but So it was, it was a hard place to go. Yeah. Um, what I found out writing that book were two things, two important things. It was to to find a kind of language that worked for me, which is the toned down language. But I also found out that the next book I wanted to write had to be funnier to write. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, going to work every morning would also be a fun thing. Yeah. Um, and that it had to be playful. It might it 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 was fine with me that it was technical, extremely hard, but it had to be playful and fun. Well, but the, okay, I, I totally get what you're saying. I can relate because um, the book that I'm writing has grief in it, and it's a it's painful to do sometimes. Yes. and I can find myself resisting it because I'm like, oh god, to do this right, you've got to mm-hmm. really sit there and kind of be with it. Yes. Um, at the same time, I like to have humor in my work, even when there's heaviness in it. Exactly. I think a lot of us feel this way because yeah. that's a more accurate reflection of how life is. Exactly. It's not all one way. The problem, and tell me if, if you've had a similar uh, experience with it, but the problem that I find is that when you're trying to walk that line between humor and pathos, if you tilt too far in one direction, it screws it up. Like it's a very delicate balance because if you go too far in the direction of pathos, then it's just like, it's so bleak. It can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It can be hard to read, mm-hmm. hard to write or hard to read. But then at the same time, if you if you reflexively veer towards the comedy, uh, you can undermine yes. the, the moment. <laughs> it's, it's a very tough balance. I usually say you have to you have to have people laugh in the in the first end of the sentence and have them cry at the end. Yeah. But they they are not supposed to know what's happening to them. 
I mean, I love when people cry yeah. over my books. Yeah. I mean, the novel I just published, people come up to me and say, oh, I sobbed at the end. I think, good. I'm just, and that's the university experience where we, we're not supposed to feel literature. Um, so... Um, you have people actually tell you that they sobbed? Yeah, yeah. Also that they laugh. And did you, when you were writing it, were you like, they're going to cry here? Mm, no. Did no, no, I'm not, manu I'm not manipul manipulative. I'm... Um, I'm writing what I would enjoy to read myself. Yeah. I mean, I'm using myself as a sort of a petri dish for what will work. Um, Are you crying when you're writing it? No, but I could be. Yeah. I have done been sometimes when I write. Uh, yeah. Also laughing out loud. It's and, a good sign. And crying. Uh, but these days... Uh, Which is totally sane, by the way, when you're exactly. alone in a quiet room. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or talking to yourself or singing or yeah. reading the text out loud, which I do a lot. Oh, I was going to ask you about that because you uh, have this kind of like oral storytelling gift in your family. You have mm -hmm. stand-up comedians in your family. You grew up kind of as a raconteur child. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're writing, are you talking it out? Is it important, oh, yes. to, you, is it important to you that your books... Um, you know, read off of the page aloud, be have a certain rhythm and be easy to read off the page. Do you know what yes. I'm saying? Yes. Okay. I love it. <laughs> it's perverted to say, but I they they have to sound good read. They have to have a melody in it, a rhythm, a sort of bluesy, jazzy thing going on and uh conversational or just mm -hmm. musical? It depends. A... It depends. Uh, the book that is out now with the Grave of Press, uh, so much for that winter, is definitely a musical book to to read and a lovely book to read. Actually, written for the voice. I call them vocal pieces almost. Uh, but a more um, my new novel, which is also bought by Grave Wolf, but won't be out in uh, America till a couple of years. It's more classical. What's it called? It's called Mirror Shoulder Signal. It's a classical novel. It's not playing with form that much. I read that in different ways, hmm. but the, Is, do you prefer one to the other in terms of the writing? I, I actually like reading my my material to audiences. Yeah, I like that energy. That's when it starts to work. But I, I mean, in, if, if like between the formal novel and then playing with form, do you have a preference? I love both, and also in the formal novel, the playing with form is also there. It's just hidden beneath the surface. Yeah. It's just it's not slapping people in the face, but it, it's there when I write. And then sometimes you like to slap people in the and face. And then sometimes I slap people <laughs> in the face, and uh, which is I think I did it for my own sake. I did it for the playfulness. I did it also to give myself some restrictions. And here we perhaps we should say that one of these stories is written entirely in one-liners. And the other it's written in lists. I did it because when you restrain yourself and, and contain the form, something else grows. It's like if you chop up your legs, I bet you your arms are going to grow big. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So something else will grow. And what grew in these stories were my language and my ability to hear nuances and to uh, be precise to work with precision, to work with melody, to work with a lot of other stuff that was trapped in the no novels I had written till then. Well, okay, yeah, like you talk about um, precision, concision, the fact that your books kept getting shorter, mm -hmm. this, this, you know, this modulation thing where you were learning how to kind of lower the mm -hmm. volume on the voice, but you were also probably learning to 
pare it down exactly. and reduce your work to more it's compression m- most essential elements mm-hmm. so when you're working like is that something that you carry through all of your work whether it's playing with form or whether it's a more formal traditional mm-hmm. novel um is that you know is the more formal novel that's coming out next um in a couple of years is that also a, an exercise in compression or does it get more expansive it gets more expansive but it's still an exercise in compression I okay. love the whole uh, speaking through uh, the lines, which is a part of the tradition I write in, I think, uh, the Danish one and the Danish minimalistic one, uh, paired with the Swedish I'm trained in, which has a lot of emotions in it. So if you take a very emotional style, a very existential style like the Bergmanian or the other big dudes up there yeah. in Sweden and women, um, and put it into this very tight, aesthetic minimalistic Danish style or uh, form. Um, these two things, compression um, and and the stylistically tight, will work together in, a, in, a, in interesting an interesting way. way yes. Yeah. So that's really the genesis of it. I think that's part of it. Is this something that you had seen done before and you were working in a tradition of like this, this kind of hybridization? Or is it something that this is just how you decided to do it because it was of interest to you? It's, it happened. This, this is not something that um, was scheduled at my desk. Okay. Oh, I'm going to put the Swedish <laughs> tradition. This is aftermath. Oh, yeah. This is aftermath because I get asked a lot. Well, right. <laughs> about about why there is this strong tension in my text, and I do think that's part of the uh, the answer. Um, it's a good answer. And it makes sense to me. Yes, and also I think it makes very strong, appealing text if people can sense that there is an emotional an emotion trapped in the stories that they can't really grasp. It's there, and it gives us some sort of disturbances or energy to to the text. There's got to be stuff happening below the surface. Exactly. In order for there... Because I feel like if there's not, then it's not full. No. And people also... And this is the the, the fun part of, of minimalism, is that if people dig it, they engage themselves very much in it because there are also blank spaces. Well, the, Every, everything isn't explained, so people can put their emotions into the and, stories. And their imagination. Exactly. It's a more active, imaginative exercise. Very much. Yeah. It's not like a, a very thick novel where you everything gets described. Right. Here there are blank spots where people put in their emotions. That's also why people come up to me sometimes and say that they read something in my stories that are really not there. Yeah, well, it's there for them. It's there for them, which I'm completely at peace with, which yeah. is actually a good thing. That's sort of the point, right? It is the point. You want Because I think that's the thing. You want to communicate your story, but especially working in that mode, you want to give people that imaginative exercise. And if you're a reader who appreciates minimalism uh, done well, then you know how fun it is to be a reader of that yes. stuff. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it gives a lot. Yes, then it's, then it's an act of, and I do think it is actually, I do think writing is an act of generosity, or it should be. It should be something that you share, uh, a room that you let people into, uh, where they can mirror themselves and bring stuff to the table, and we can share this uh, moment. And I'm I'm just the instigator. I'm just the one who makes it possible yeah. because I got these these tools to do it. Um, and and you have the the will and the you know the, we have to have the the will and the craziness to sit there in a room and do the work. Yes, exactly. Is it easy for you to do the work? Like I mean, do, like do you have do you have to force yourself? Do you have to inf- you know because people have crazy ways of disciplining themselves, and then some writers it's like can't wait to get to the keyboard. Mm-hmm. 
Like, what kind of writer are you? I think I'm the kind of writer that is writing all the time without writing. I'm, uh, are you writing right now? I think I am. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm sitting here in LA, almost tilting in a garage. Look for <laughs> look for look for Dorda's uh, upcoming story called uh, "Ear Stones in a Sweltering Garage." <laughs> exactly. No, I do think I, I just live my life and I just try to live it as openly as I can. And, um, and, um, do you take, take notes? It in. I do when I travel. You do? I, yes, because oh. I need my little bubble yeah. in airports and places. So I, I do write stuff down. It's not important things, but it's, um, it's good to, uh, to have a place to put your thoughts. And um, I just, I, my experience is that it spills out over at one point. I've uh, collected enough material to uh, to start writing something, and then I write. How do you know? You just you have the impulse to write, or is there like I start, and then it sometimes just... it sits there for a couple of months, and I think, oh, this is not going to work. But then I found out the angle to attack it from, and then quite often it just evolves from there, and quite often it's just written from A, B, C, D to the end. Linear. Yes. Do you write, uh, you mean you talked about that first book pouring out of you in five weeks. Do you typically write a first draft really quickly? Does it, you just let yourself go? No, I mean, in the first books, I wrote the drafts pretty quickly and then I edited it afterwards. But now I edit as I write. Yeah. It's like when I'm done, there's not much to do. It's more efficient. Exactly. But that, I, but that also means I, I write slower. Yeah, but, you know, cause that's, how, that's how I'm doing it and it can feel sometimes like okay this is efficient i'm doing it right the first time so i don't have to do it over again but it can also sometimes feel uh, neurotic because i'm just tweaking the text mm -hmm. repeatedly mm -hmm. you're moving like there are days when you'll get like a paragraph and it's not mm -hmm. even a long paragraph no but you're just you know you're f fussing over every little thing but the thing is, and we also see this in all the creative writing classes that is out there, that spilling a lot of language is not necessarily writing well. Yeah. I mean, I can write 400 pages well. That's not hard. The, the hard thing is actually to work through the resistance of the text. I mean, the days when there is only one line there or, or you only get to page two. Yeah. Um, and if, if in the writing process, if you don't feel that kind of resistance, that kind of wall you're constantly pushing, then it's probably not necessarily well what you're writing. If it's too easy and too sloppy, then you're just having fun with the whole experience of sitting by a computer. Yeah, and then that's the thing. You like to type, you know, but it's, yeah, uh, it's like, like to type. it's like uh, I can sometimes I, I mistrust the sloppy first draft for me for mm -hmm. my own experience because I just think it's too permissive I give myself permission to write a shitty draft yeah I don't I mean I don't want a shitty draft no I understand that there's going to have to be edits mm -hmm. and fixes of course but like I think every time you sit down you should be doing your best to get it right exactly that's all exactly. so we're on, we're on the same page we're exactly we agree yes and we I don't agree about all like biography but we, no. do, we do agree about this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, let's talk about your big international breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Because you, um, there aren't a ton of Danish writers who break out in the States uh, the way they probably should. Mm -hmm. uh, but you've had some success here and you've had some success uh, in other countries. Like, what mm -hmm. happened? Uh, what happened was that after the book about grief, <laughs> that was sucking the life out of me, um, I wrote a short story collection called Karate Chop, and that was fun to write. 
it's still full of heartache and creepy stuff, uh, but uh, it was fun to write. It was fun heartache. It was, because what happened was that I had apparently finally found my voice. Found, you know, it was like I'd been rehearsing the cello for decades and found out that it was the ukulele that was my instrument. <laughs> I mean, I finally found out what what uh, form it was that I, that I was supposed to use. And how so d- does that does it, is that to say that the grief book, lacking maybe the fun of Karate Chop, was not your true voice. It was getting there. It, it was, was it, it was on the way. It yeah. was it was peeping out there. Uh-huh. Uh, but you had uh, to go through it. I had to go through it. I had to write it, um, and. Uh, that was published in Denmark in 2008, Karate Chop, and uh, great reviews, um, but then nothing happened. A British uh, translator then approached me and said, uh, should we try and translate some of these stories? He wanted to be a translator, and he needed some samples for his uh, skills, so he wanted to translate some of these. And I said, yes, go ahead. And he said, haven't you spent some time in New York? And I said, yes, but do you know anyone? And I didn't really, but I had a few contacts from American Pen. So we figured out where we should send these stories when they were translated. And they got picked up. They, there was no problem getting the magazines to print them. I've never, ever tried in America to have a story rejected. It was like one story here, one story there. And I, I sat in Denmark and I thought, well, that's easy. They put in the, they don't put the bar that high. America's, <laughs> yeah, America's no problem. And no, no, no. They're, 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 they don't have any, they don't have any criticism. They just take it in. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, I, um, I finally got picked up by a public space in, uh, New York and, uh, started doing, uh, I had several, couple of stories printed there and then they had a collaboration with Grey Wolf about printing books and they chose mine and then they sent one of the last three stories that had not yet been printed in other magazines to the New Yorker and the New Yorker picked it up wow um, and, and this and this should be said because I've I've had writers on this show I have a couple of friends that have had this happen getting a short story published in the New Yorker is a legitimately big deal in the way that few things are for short stories. It is, and I also knew that in Denmark. At least I sobbed when I heard, when I got the mail. That By said, the way, that's uh, David Remnick flying over the house right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, hello. Yeah, or it's actually it's a police chase, but uh, <laughs> go ahead. Um, so I knew it was big, but I didn't know how big it was. And, and um, I had American uh, writing friends, for instance, Jared Kobeck, who... Um, who, who thought I was hilarious because I had the most stupid questions about what it meant to be uh, published in the New Yorker. And yeah, said, but how would you know? I mean, right? But I knew it was big. I mean, everybody knows it was big. Even the Danish media picked up on that being big. Yeah. Um, so, but it was it was like a life it 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 was a life change, changing things. But that meant that the book was um, reviewed everywhere and had a sort of a great life sure yes and then here you are again and here i am again and you couldn't translate your own work no i can't i do write in english uh i write essays and uh smaller not primarily i write them in english really 
Yes, I just read uh, wrote a piece for Lit Hub. But I mean, all, all of your books you write in English, or do you? No, 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 no. Oh, oh. No, no, no. I write in Danish. Okay, yeah. I write my literature in Danish, I but I say. do write stuff that is not literary, that is essays or articles. I can write that in English, and I do. But I would never write my short stories in English. I would never write my literature in English. You wouldn't, but you couldn't. Could you take it and translate it? No. No, you would hand that to no. somebody else. No, 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 no. I, I need somebody who who uh, who knows it from uh, birth. Yeah, it's like you know. Who knows it from within? It's very important who translates your work. Very important. It matters greatly. Yes, to the it does. read and uh, you know people who are really good translators. That's a gift. It's mm-hmm. like there are these really understated gifts in literature that I don't think get enough. Um, they don't get enough credit. Like a really good editor. You know how how much of a gift it is to be a skilled editor. How much of a gift it is to be a skilled translator like just don't get a lot of uh, spotlight but no. they're very critical to a writer especially a writer trying to cross borders you know that is incredibly important with a good editor and a good translator is very important well my first translator was uh, uh british and i got now i work with uh, an american uh, translator who lives in denmark and we work very closely together well, it's like, and at least you can read the translation. The thing about that's so unnerving about translation is that you get a translator into Russian. Yes. You, you don't speak Russian. It's like you're taking it on faith. Exactly. Then you got to have, or yeah. have a friend who's bilingual in Russian and English who can like let you know yes. how it reads. Yes. And that's how it feels when, you know, I'm, I'm out in a lot of countries where I don't speak the language and then you just have to have faith in, in that the publishers are good i think if, if you have a good publisher there you know they're in control of that they won't right. let out uh, trash but you can't you can't there's no way to quality control no 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 you can't so how about um in the aftermath of getting published in the new yorker you obviously had um publication success and good review coverage stateside mm-hmm. um what about your publication life outside of denmark in europe do you are you published in countries all throughout europe Yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, the Scandinavian countries, yeah. Norway, Sweden, and uh, uh, Great Britain. Um, have a lot of fun in Great Britain, too. Love to go there uh, and work with them. And Germany and Holland and Turkey and, and the Czech Republic. Do you go on book and, tour to all these places? No, no, I, I can't. But I, I prefer to go to the places where I can actually read my stuff myself and where they understand English yeah. because uh, you don't want to have a translator. Uh, no, and sometimes I just I was just at the, in uh, in Prague in the Czech Republic and everything has to go through translators and all that's the same in Germany and uh, sometimes you, <laughs> you wish you could send a hologram of yourself just, because you're not really doing anything. Just hand it to somebody like you exactly. read it. Exactly, no and they do. They hand it to an actor who who read it and and then you just sit there. Yeah. Basically, and glad I'm, I showed up. Yeah, I, I have thought about sending a cardboard version of myself or Skype in. You could yeah, Skype just, in. It, it's not really necessary to be there always, but of course I, I do go because there are lovely book people these place, but places. But um, and it's nice to be invited. Yeah, it I mean is. I think until you get to there, there, there's a certain rare air upper echelon that you can get to in literature mm-hmm. where you you have too many invites and you mm-hmm. actually have to turn things down. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think. The overwhelming majority of us, like you go where you're invited. Yes. I mean, unless there's really extenuating circumstances, if somebody's nice enough to invite you to a foreign country to sit there while somebody reads your work, you kind of got to say yes. Yes. <laughs> but that's also, you know, I, I love to go to these festivals. Do prefer the ones where I can actually read my work myself and answer the questions myself. 
the wonderful thing about this is meeting the best international colleagues, yeah. uh, picking their brains, um, seeing them live, and um, also travel a little bit. It's fun. That's yes, what I was going to say. Like living in Denmark, this is what I envy about people who live in Europe and Scandinavia is that uh, you have access to so many different cultures at a relatively mm-hmm. close proximity. Yes. Do you take advantage of that? Like, do you vacation? Do you take holiday? I never vacation. Ever. Until this happened, I wouldn't have the money for it. Oh, right. And now I only go to the places where I'm invited, yeah. <laughs> which is my way of traveling. And, and, I, and I have never been at a vacation kind of person. Or just a traveler. Like, I'll go take a train down to Prague. But that, maybe it's not as easy as it sounds. I never had the money. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and, and quite frankly, people who go, oh, well, I'll go to Mallorca in Spain and just lay on the beach all day, never my thing. Yeah. So it, so just for a couple of days. I don't like being like, yeah, I can't be laying out in the sun. No. It's not my thing. No, exactly. So I'm not. I'm not the kind of. But I love working when I'm, I'm uh, when I'm traveling. So for instance, now when I'm visiting eight super cool American independent bookstores. And we don't have that many independent bookstores in Denmark anymore. So I think, okay, I'm, I'm going on this rough trip. It's busy. The ear stones are hell, <laughs> right. everything. I'll take notes on the bookshops, how they do it. Can we learn something? And, and then perhaps write something about that uh, when I get home. For like Danish press. Yeah, so I like, I like working when I'm out there. That yeah. makes me also, it also means that I meet more interesting people like you for instance i mean i'm extremely interested look at this garage (laughs) in this garage nothing screams interesting like a (laughs) spider infested garage are there spiders here there probably are oh thank you for telling me um so do you have uh like when you go to new york did you ever go to the new yorker Uh, no you've never met those people they just they changed your life but you've never actually interfaced i met the editor of the first piece i had in there i had a piece in there again Uh uh-huh uh but I so I, I, one of the editors came to a reading I did back in 2014. That's the only connection I have to them. Isn't that strange how that can happen? Yes. Somebody can change your life. Yes. And you never meet them. And you never meet them. Yeah. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Oh my God! Thank you. Yeah. That's like the internet. That's publishing. That's. I mean, it really is. A, it's a funky. You know, pub- publishing can mm-hmm. be kind of a funky business that way because. You can be writers live all over the place. Yes, publishing, especially in the states, tends to be centered in New York, and in Denmark, centered in Copenhagen. I was going to uh, say, yeah. But the interesting thing is that some of the best artists and the best writers uh, in the world quite often live away from that center. Uh-huh. And I usually tell people that who said, "Well, I can't have a breakthrough because I'm not living in New York, and I can't live, you know." And I said, "Well." I mean, the list is long of big artists and big matter. writers. It does matter in the beginning of your career, I would say. Like but it matters professionally. Exactly. It doesn't matter artistically. No, it doesn't matter artistically, but it matters on, on if you get good footing in it. Um, sure. But but uh, apart from that, think it over. The huge and great artists of the world who live away from the scene. And also, know you got to know yourself. <laughs> You yes. know, you, like, you know, you had that longing to be back in the countryside mm-hmm. that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. That's what you need to feel whole or to feel like yourself or to be in your best space. Yes. And, and like, you got to you got to be true to that. You can't try to conform. And some people, it's like they want to be in the middle of Manhattan. 
Yes, and, and that's, that's where they thrive. That's where they thrive. And yes. so it's like whatever your thing is, do it. Yes. But don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to like live in Manhattan when you really want to live in like the wilds of northern exactly. Minnesota. Exactly. So what about what about uh the sh- what about the winters? Like when you're up there in the countryside in this like Oh, I love it. It's freezing, it's dark. Are you it's okay? dark and it's cozy and it's rough. It's like being slapped in the head every time you walk out the door of the northwestern winds. It's like There's I There's no love depression. It. You don't get depressed. No, no, no. No seasonal affective disorder. No. No, not at all. Okay. I I enjoy that I can tell that I'm alive when I walk out the door and I enjoy that I don't have to transport myself into nature that it's there I can just walk into it yeah it's uh, a very important thing to me and it was also a much more important thing to me than I thought when I was younger well. I, because I always thought well I'll probably move back to something with, a, with, with leaves and trees one day but yeah. but the older I got the stronger the urge well, and you, but you had your time in the city too cause I, I did and I learned a lot from it yes and I think it's important to I think it's important to get outside your comfort zone try different things like yes. how, how else are you going to know exactly how else are you going to know what your thing is exactly. if you've only had one thing you know? And also, I do think for, for this is the one thing to say about writing communities and stuff, that it's probably good uh, to get to know what's going on in your own writing culture. Not necessarily merge with it, but at least know how it works. Mm. When you know how it works and who's who and who's in charge and who's got the power, you also know how to maneuver and whether you want to be part of it. Do you know what the power structure is in, in Danish publishing? Oh, yes. Like, what's the what's the best <laughs> publisher in Denmark? What's, like, the, the FSG of Denmark? Well, the biggest publisher uh-huh. and, uh, is Gyllendale. That's it's called you, Gyllendale. If you're going to be translated into Danish, uh, like, if you you know your book sells foreign rights mm-hmm. and you're an American author, that's who you want to publish you? Yes, because they have the money to buy your book. Right. Because they're big. Uh, and they do do sell or some quite a few books in translation. But the problem is, because Denmark is so small, is that they have bought up almost all the independent publishers. So they, the monopoly is too big there, oh, I do okay. think. But it, it is actually my publisher. But I do think it's very, very, very important with independent publishers. Yeah. Um, and I hope that there are more. And, and small independent publishers are popping up in the Danish literary landscape. Well, that's good. Yeah. They should. I mean, the, techn- the technology is there. It can yeah. be done. It's, yes. it's not like insanely expensive to do it. No, they should do it. Um, and then when it comes to like the way that Danish audiences or Danish readership receives your work versus how it's received elsewhere, like in the mm-hmm. States, for example, mm-hmm. is there a difference? Like how are you regarded at home versus how are you, you're regarded here? Is there... I'm well regarded at home now. Um, I do think there is a difference, though. In Denmark, they're more concerned with the context than the text, and it's because I do think it's because it's a small country, um, and we, we know each other, so they want to. They're more interested in where I live than what I write, basically. Well, they'll love this podcast then. Exactly, <laughs> um, and. There are also some power structures in Danish literature uh, that you can tell uh, in in the way I'm received. But I'm I'm very I'm I'm happy. You're I happy. should not complain. About like this. like are you like the like like if uh, I'm thinking of like Zadie Smith, I'm thinking of um, Laurie Moore. Is that like a are you like the Laurie Moore of Danish literature? 
I don't know much about Lori Moore. Uh, okay. I'm just trying to but think perhaps, of like where where her station is. You know what I'm saying? Perhaps, perhaps something like that. Your book's bestsellers there. Uh, the last two, ah, in and in Danish terms. I'm going to drop your name next time I'm in Copenhagen. Bestselling, yes. So, yeah. Well, but the whole American thing changed my writing life in Denmark completely because back in Denmark they didn't know who I was. I, I mean, in the literary communities they knew who I was, uh, but the common reader never heard of me until that well that's interesting until the new yorker thing and until the 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 huge reception in uh, in in america wow so that had a validating effect yes, back home and, and the strange thing is that that has happened quite a few time in danish uh, art history and literary history that a writer has to go through america or through international acclaim before we notice them back well, I home. I feel like that kind of ha- I mean, I think of like the Beatles, like rock and roll, like musicians have to sort of come across the pond and conquer America or whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe there's something similar happening. I do. I hear it in many countries that it's like that. And isn't there a saying in the Bible that says that a prophet is never acknowledged in his hometown? Maybe so. Something like that. that sounds good. You know? Yeah. Um, and plus people, people like to be told what's good. Yes. You know, and once it happens, then it's sort of self-perpetuating. It's, yes. It's, you know, it sort of builds on itself naturally. But, you know, there's a validation. And like I was saying earlier, the New Yorker, for all the, you know, there are people bitch about it, you know, in literary circles endlessly. Yes, yeah. But the truth is that it uh, it's one of the few places that can actually move the needle and like change your career exactly. and validate. So it's a it's a fortunate place to wind up. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that all this happened yeah. in America. Yeah. I, I truly am. It's, uh, it's the American dream. It's, it is. It is. It, is, it has been a life changer and it has changed my career from being uphill to being fun and to being what I always dreamed of that it would be. Because I would never stop writing. But at one point it felt that the whole part of writing that is about generosity and about meeting the reader and about sharing that and opening these spaces uh, to people that wouldn't happen if i didn't have any readers <laughs> right right so you can open the room all you want but yeah, somebody's got to so come now in now when i'm writing it actually feels as if i'm in a dialogue I'm doing yeah what i always dreamt of doing being in that zone wow. doing that thing well that's awesome congratulations thank you it's so nice to talk with you i'm glad i caught you while you're here uh, i wish you the best of luck with uh, your writing and with your ear stones. <laughs> ear stones. I'm glad you didn't pass out during the, during the <laughs> I conversation. I didn't. It lent this a certain drama. <laughs> it would. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dorda. Thank you for having me over. All right, folks. There you go. That is Dorda Norris. Go get her book. It is called So Much for That Winter, available now from Grey Wolf Press. You can find Dorda online at dordanors.dk. She's also on Twitter where her handle is at Dorda Norris. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com don't forget about the app the other people app this podcast has its own official app it's free it's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program the app is free did i say that it's free go get it wherever you get your apps when you do that the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge you get the most recent 50 episodes for free new episodes upload to the app automatically you don't have to do anything they will appear there as if by magic you can download episodes to listen to while you're offline you can favorite your favorite episodes And then, if you would like to get at every episode, if you want access to the archives, if you want to hear 
all of the conversations anywhere you go at your fingertips. You just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It costs 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything, including my conversations with writers like George Saunders, Jonathan Evison, Cheryl Strayed, Tao Lin, Hilton Owls, Roxane Gay, Ben Marcus, Sheila Hetty, Amy Bender, Edwidge Dantica. The list goes on. Jonathan Lethem. It's a great way to support the show when you sign up for premium. Please do that. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Letters at otherppl.com. Really enjoyed talking with Dorda. She makes me want to travel. She makes me want to go to Denmark. She makes me want to live in a socialist, uh, democratic socialist utopia. Please remember that Einstein was reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason at age 13, and that E.M. Forster once referred to Ulysses as, quote, a dogged attempt to cover the universe with mud. That's it for now. Uh, thanks once again to Dorda Norris. Go get her books. Karate Chop, so much for that winter. They're out there. There's more on the way. Track her down. And uh, thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. You know I appreciate that. I'll be back uh, next week. I'll be back next week. Will I be back next week? Yeah.